Well, it's summertime, and now it's time to head indoors. And believe me, when I said embarrassment of riches at the Bowers Museum this summer, I was not kidding you. Today, it's my pleasure to bring Victoria Gerard here. She joins me in studio to talk about the, all of those exhibits. She is the Associate Curator of Special Exhibitions and Research at the Bowers, and she is here to talk about the following multifaceted exhibits. The first is the 1968 exhibit, Qi Ba Shi, China's Modern Master, Adams, Curtis, and Weston, the California, the, the Great West, and there is a retrospective of <laughs> Nancy Ravenhall Johnson. We'll hope to get it all because uh, some of these are moving out sooner than later, so uh, that's it behooved me to set this up interview pronto. So welcome to the show, Victoria. Thank you, Claudia. So we are glad to talk about what's going on. I think because the 1968 exhibit just opened on uh, June 13th. Mm -hmm. uh, it's finishing its national tour that began in 2011, now having its last lap in Santa Ana. That's right. How did you get snared into that? <laughs> well, uh, the the museum that put the show together is a really great uh, institution in Minnesota, the Minnesota Historical Society. And um, they travel a few exhibitions, and we worked with them in 2009 and 2010 for a Ben Franklin exhibition that uh, some of the listeners might remember. And it was a great success at the Bowers, and people really loved it. So when the Minnesota Historical Society approached us with the 1968 exhibit, we jumped on the opportunity to be able to work with them again, especially on such a dynamic uh, exhibition as 1968. Uh, the topic is incredible. So, Yes, and I was a tough customer going into this. I said, I don't really need nostalgia. I want <laughs> I want commentary. You, uh, They pull off, and let's give a, a, a sort of a kudos to it's a, a, the museums from Atlanta, Oakland, mm -hmm. and Chicago. They're all over contributing, right. and there's there's personal histories, and they're not, they're not the kind of gossamer kind of thing. I mean, they're really, they're, they're their oral histories that were taken in the tapes in the interactive displays most uh, all of them are interactive displays right. these are more sort of contemporary taken uh, narratives from veterans uh, civil rights workers and that kind of a thing they're all uh, it's it's really it's not uh, so much about not there's some nostalgia i mean you can go there if you want to but it's it's about looking at it for yourself and um and I'm going to talk about demographics in just a minute. But first, I want to talk some structure here. Sure. That the features, it, it occurred to me, ex the exhibit starts and it ends with Walter Cronkite. Yes. A news anchor who was, was much, he was watched by a much broader public than any one public views current anchors. So I'm wondering out loud with you, Valerie, uh, if the national experience of 1968 would have been more polarized with the current extensive array of news outlets and social media platforms available. That, that anchoring of with Walter Cronkite gives us a chance in that living room to experience. Uh, not, it wasn't unifying in 1968, mm -hmm. but there were, there, we weren't so polarized uh, as we are by how we consume our media now. Right, right. Well, one thing I think is interesting about Walter Cronkite is that he has been called the most trusted man in America. And you talk about social media and um, the current media structure that we have exposure to. And I don't think anyone really considers any anchors these days the most trusted people in America. So Walter Cronkite was really a, a presence that people could relate to, despite some of the 
very intense events and um, polarization that was happening. So the other thing I think is at play that was very wise with the designers is that, um, you know, he, Walter Cronkite, was instrumental in bringing the Vietnam War to the living room, you know, the living room war, and, and um, it sort of spurred on modern media practice, really. And you show that. The yes. footage on that old TV console is there are infantrymen that are ducking bullets. Right. They don't know uh, where snipers are, and they give you that. Right. R- Real-time 1968 kind and, of coverage. And that, I think, is... That was a first. Exactly, and I think that's part of the value, not only for setting um, the design and, and creating an experience for visitors, but also really historically as an exhibit to demonstrate what that time was like and how instrumental Walter Cronkite was in, again, sort of changing the media um the media activities at the time to bring this footage to everyone. And uh, when the exhibit ends with Walter Cronkite as well, with the, um, again, another living room scene, but at the end of the year, 1968, with the, um, there's a replica of a Apollo 8 lunar module um, talking about landing on the moon. Uh, This was another huge event. So we go from one end of the spectrum with the war to the total other end of the spectrum, yet he's a still constant figure that was in the living room experiencing all these events with people. Unless the listeners think this was a saccharine kind of uh, presentation at the end, in the same living room we're watching uh, Walter Cronkite cover the Earthrise from the, the moonscape, that there is a, an accounting of how many, uh, how many, how much the Vietnam War had escalated, and I think it was 120,000 dead right. in that one year. So it's a, the living room is loaded with all kinds of uh, uh, emotions and with, with coverage. So I, I'm, I was very interested before I went and during that, and I want to open it up more with what you, where you've been sort of bopping around, the, that exhibit is the, the demographic that lived it. I mean, and I lived it. Mm-hmm. I was in eighth grade. There, there I am. <laughs> that it, it certainly has a draw for that age patron. But tell us about the... Once the patrons that are coming in born well after that. Sure. Well, one of the phenomena that occurred with this exhibit that we were aware of at the other venues is that this exhibit became sort of a venue for families to explore this uh, this year and different members of the family's experience together um, with those that were alive at the time and with their grandchildren or their children, nieces and nephews. So sort of what you see is whole families coming to this exhibit and uh, you learn things about your relatives or about the time that you may not have ever known. I can say, uh, you know, as a 20 something, of course, I wasn't alive at this time. And our exposure, you know, in my age group is what we learn in the classroom. So I think this is a really valuable way to immerse yourself. I mean, we were talking about the living room before. You can actually sit uh, in the living room, on the couches, uh, kind of make yourself comfy and put yourself in that year and listen to your you know, family member or a docent or what have you communicate their experiences. And uh, I actually had a similar experience to the opening. Um, I brought my father-in-law with me who uh, was a Green Beret around the time of the Vietnam War. So I got to learn a lot about his experiences um, and it really brought us, I think, closer together. So, you know, it's those kinds of experiences that this exhibit is creating, not only nostalgia or reflection, but also kind of bringing families together. And I want to say also structurally about the exhibit is I'm looking at one setting, one uh, design piece, 
and I can hear what's going on in another one. Mm -hmm. And at first you think, oh, that's a distraction. But that this is what 68 was like. Right. You are watching popular culture open up. You're watching uh, women's movement question uh, the right for a woman to move in with a man that they're not married. You're looking at Virginia's. Oh, hey, wait a minute. I wasn't supposed to bring this up. <laughs> I was like, well, you're, you're bringing up all these things, but that is what was it was all going on so that you're stacking up all of these experiences, these senses, is really a fair depiction of what that year was like. Absolutely. And one of the things that I think uh, is really worth noting is that, of course, there were some very tragic and traumatic events that occurred in the year 1968. But um, in the way that you say you hear all these other things going on when you're walking through, the designers have also done a really great job of creating these lounges throughout the exhibit that discuss the popular culture and fashion and kind of commercialism of the year. So, you know, if you kind of need a break, you can wander into one of these lounges that are highly interactive, um, sit on a beanbag and take a music quiz, uh, which was also, you know, the music of that year was very significant even today. Well, you mentioned beanbags, but I, I was there on kind of a peak uh, hour, and uh, nobody's sitting down. They are standing up and looking raptly at all of their uh, interactive and not-so-interactive exhibits there. Right. Well, and I think, again, there's a lot of great things about this exhibit. W one of the best things is that it is a little bit of a different exhibit for us at the Bowers since it does have a highly interactive component. So it has, um, I think, something to offer everyone in the sense that um, you can kind of choose your own way through the exhibit and what you focus on. And there's really so much going on that you can pay several visits there and always have a different experience just in that one exhibit, not even in the rest of our museum. And Valerie's not kidding. I've heard somebody else say that uh, unprompted. That <laughs> they need to go back, but they had to go back to the Pacific Northwest, so they, um, they're going to not have that chance unless they come back down before. Uh, we, we want everybody to know this exhibit goes now until September 13th at the Bowers. My guest, for those of you who joined us, my guest is Victoria Gerard, Associate Curator of Special Exhibitions and Research at the Bowers here on Ask a Leader at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine in galleries all over the world on the web at KUCI.org. We're talking about the 1968 exhibit and I, I wanted to um, talk about the 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 national there was a national tribe and I guess we, we talked about um, it uh, let me just say this it in real time when I was living in 1968 I think we did get that that year was really something happening and and I'm not connecting it or comparing it to the frenetics or like there's so much going on in terms of, of technological advance. I mean, there was a technological advance in space uh, mm -hmm. travel, space flight, but but I'm there was, it seemed like so much was happening. You, you barely could handle one assassination of a major leader, right. beloved leader, that uh, and then another assassination, sort of like you couldn't breathe between labor pains very much. And so it, it seemed like that. And so that's uh, it's it's really quite remarkable what you put in there. Absolutely, and uh, one of the things I like the, the best about the exhibit is, although, like I said, there are these really significant tragic events that happen, there's also kind of things happening on a smaller scale. One of the stories told in the exhibit is about a co-ed who got expelled for... Um, 
living with her boyfriend off campus. So she wasn't even on campus um, and she got expelled. And it, you know, sort of speaks to the movement of um, changing environment for women. Birth control was found in her dorm room, even though she wasn't <gasps> there. You know, exactly. So um, and I, I think that's especially rewarding for people that were not alive at that time to really understand where the things that are so normal for us today uh, were so difficult for our predecessors. And the unspoken relay here was it was her name that was Leclerc, what's her, Leclerc? Madeline Leclerc. Madeline Leclerc. So it's the Leclerc affair. There's no guy's name. And I also noticed in that exhibit where we had some war protesters in a uh, photograph t- uh, together, right. but none of the women were named. Some of the guys are named, but not the two women seated with the guys. So there's there's that kind of still that gender bias coming through the content, both in how the Leclerc affair was depicted then and how we are presenting uh, the Berrigan brothers get their names mentioned, but not the other women, that, that are the two women that are in the photograph. So that that was not lost on me. Mm-hmm. So um, we let's see uh, some more items about that. I um, it's I, I want for everybody to take their time. There's some more subtle kinds of presentations that doesn't necessarily uh, jump out at you. And I, I I'm not giving away anything uh, with saying this that. Uh, it's in the sort of the backside of the exhibit where we see stills of people that are watching the train of Robert Kennedy's body from leaving from New York going to to the D- to Virginia. Mm-hmm. So um, it's those stills are made look like they're motion by sort of their panning each of those stills there. So uh, I'm not sure if all patrons understand. The gravity and the uh, solemnity and the the, the unifying part. I mean, it, it has a unifying theme there. It looks like sure. all walks of life, races, gender, blah blah blah, are are taking in this slow traveling train through the Northeast. You, you get it from the a narrative talking about. We just didn't want this train ride to stop. Exactly. But I I, I had to tell a young lady. I said I I was just compelled to say you know th- what this was all about. So she'd slow down and and uh, take it in so i'm i I want for everybody to plan enough time i'm thinking three hours might be enough i think so and maybe another exhibit but and you want to make sure to take some time to enjoy the interactives as well um which a lot of people are enjoying uh they're really fun you can even make an album cover uh of a 1960s kind of uh music act you can name it whatever you want and use graphics and as i said there's some music quizzes so there's a lot to offer not just to absorb but also to do hands-on and music man you bringing us back that playlist as we're walking in toward the entrance there is just uh it's and that's how long is the playlist actually do you know i mean i don't know how how long it is but i can tell you every time i walk by the upstairs portion uh of the administrative offices that overhangs right Right. there i never hear the same song twice so i think um we have a great gallery store as many people know and we were able to um, get some great selections uh, for sale there and um, we're able to kind of broadcast them through the foyer before you get into the exhibit so and you even with the one interactive exhibit it's about tr- having people guess. It's kind of a technical information about what went into some of these recordings, mm-hmm. uh, historical sorts of developments in uh, how what sounds were introduced and all that. But even uh, sort of the the breaks in between those questions and all that, we're hearing that Chambers Brothers. To, oh, I couldn't believe it. It's just, <laughs> it was, so that's there's there really is quite a bit 
for everybody yes. there. And so you're and you're seeing the ordinary. So the, there's a Huey. There's I'm not giving anything away. The Huey helicopter was reassembled and put in there, and that's where we get up to about. I think eight different uh, oral histories from people that were involved uh, on the ground yes. right there. And it's important to know too that that was an actual Huey that was, you know, used uh, in the military and at um, several venues, the part of the team that assembles it, part of the professional logistics team consists of some veterans. So it was a very ex- special experience for them as well to assemble that every time they um, take it wow. apart and put it back together every time. So uh, it, it's really um, kind of a great healing experience as well as just kind of a way again to share stories over doing this, you know, putting this exhibit together every time. And I first, when I heard about the Huey, I thought, oh, certainly it's in that larger space there where you have the South Pacific, uh, what I think those are, the sculptural, that large auditorium. Drums, but, yes, but, in but, our John Lee Court. But that, I but I was told, no, 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 it's at the entrance. It's right right off to the left from the, the ticket, the yes. box office. And so that really, it's sort of, you're really tightly sort of enclosed in around this. You're, you're, it makes, I'm thinking, for a much more intimate experience of hearing those stories. And the the spectrum of, of, of backgrounds and all that, it's quite varied between there. It's very, uh, very, very compelling. It definitely sets uh, the scene and creates an emotional experience as it's one of the first things you see when you walk in. So you're right there with it. And the... The, the furnishings, the early, the, uh, the uh, what do they call it, the contemporary, I can't remember the name of that, uh, the furnishings, they're all, uh, it's, it's the living room settings, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, it's all, it all brings people back in yes. to the, wh- what we were all looking at there. I mean, the, those old sets are crazy. <laughs> oh, so, um, the African American, the, the Black Panther movement, the Brown movement, there's a very tiny piece about the Native Americans yes. that rose up in 1968 that was major but they're they're given like one panel so it's folks slow down so you don't miss that panel yes and you know part of the interesting um, aspect about the show I think is as you mentioned before real artifacts not even artifacts you know the way we traditionally think of them real items that were used by people are included in this exhibit uh, from museums all over the country and I think you know really getting um, the Minnesota getting their hands on some of these things probably wasn't very easy because a lot of people still have such an emotional connection um, to the events that happened in that year. So despite that, I think they were still able to assemble um, a really great collection of pieces to view um, and working with what they had to really create an experience and tell a story. I think the designers did very well. Mid-century is what I was trying to think of. It's that mid-century. Mid-century. Yeah. And that and that's the, I think that's a statement in of itself that it was mid-century, 68 sort of is still, and but it kicked into another, a whole another epoch with, with what w- was going on. Well, I can year. tell you at the closing living room set, there's some fruit. It's not glass fruit. It's like that plastic oh acrylic. Oh my gosh! And I remember my grandmother having all kinds of things in her living room. Four basic that material. food groups and plastic. Yeah. So as soon as I saw that uh, when I walked through the exhibit for the first time, as it's a prop, you know, I didn't have that on the list. I didn't know it was going to be there. It took me right back to my grandmother's living room, and I kind of touched it immediately. And that's the thing; those kinds of props, not the cased artifacts, are things that you can touch. Okay, there you go. You just got the curator's permission (laughs) okay to touch okay well i'm not sure it's clear there so but um but there aren't people there's not that much presence a guard presence around there so it's not like i guess that's a subtle way of relaying that folks tactile get into it get into the kinesthetic piece of that 
So it's the last one. Well, how how lucky is Bauer to get that then? So did you have to work hard to get that exhibit some time ago? As we said, behind the scenes, I think it might have been around the year 2013 or so um, that we were approached. But as I said, we had such a great time working with Minnesota previously for Ben Franklin and our visitors really responded to that exhibit that was interactive as well but not as uh, technologically and um, interactive this exhibit 1968 even connects with social media so um, it was interactive in a different way and when we saw all the components together and we knew how great um, the exhibit was received by all these other visitors at different venues you know even before it really took off you know this was maybe two years after it opened that we were approached we thought this would be a great thing to bring to our public and our visitors in the community so I'm remembering when I think it was called The Quiet American, the film that talks about the sort of seamier side of the American presence in Vietnam. And I remember a very high profile uh, conservative Republican uh, political leader, uh, Harriet Weeder. Anybody remembers her? I remember watching that movie with her. And so this reminded me of people coming into the exhibit here and uh, I know they're coming from all uh, political stripes there, and so it's uh, experiencing this together. I think I think there's a change of heart about just uh, that Martin Luther King is no longer considered a subversive leader in right. the dark sense, a subversive leader in a, with a, in this in a politically and a socially positive sense. And and Robert Kennedy, uh, I I think that sort of people have sort of maybe come converge more on their thinking. Uh, from what they might have thought then. It's an interesting experience that 1968 exhibit allows. And you know what adds to that for sure is that there's an actual voting booth from the yes. 1968 presidential election. And it's not, I don't know we could touch it. And yes, then I just you pulled can, it, so I don't know if I pulled the wrong vote. No, person. you can vote for whoever you want. I, I figured that yes. out. But I thought, who did I vote for when I pulled the lever? And then I voted for my guy. <laughs> well, it's funny. Every time I kind of um, have the opportunity to you take a, a peek lot? through there. No, I just like to take a peek. And JFK always seems to have the majority of the uh the votes and he always seems to be in the lead so we'll see if that continues throughout the rest of the exhibit um you know through september but like you say you know things have really changed and things have become maybe perhaps more polarized in different ways but uh jfk is still hanging on to that uh to that lead so we'll see for those of you who just joined my show here on ask a leader i have the delight of having associate curator of special exhibitions and research at the Bowers, Victoria Gerard, holding court here with, uh, we talked about the 1968 exhibit, and I want to hasten to bring up the Kibashi Chinese uh, exhibit that Mm -hmm. is here only for a barely less than a month from now she's that he's done at on july 19th and i really want people to head over there that's why you got to spend maybe so many hours and maybe take in one exhibit and come back spend go back to that 1968 and take in another exhibit but this uh kibashi is a special uh a peasant Mm -hmm. who uh came on uh, the scene and became known as a kind of the Picasso equivalent. You let us know yes. that. This is nothing obscure. I've researched folks, so don't let me fool you. Uh, and so do you want to talk a little bit about sure. what he brings to the eye, what he's refined in the, the work of his lifetime? Sure. So Chu Bai Shu um, is as you were saying, Claudia, kind of known as the Picasso of China, but um, his most important modern period painter. Um, And like you said, he kind of was a self-taught artist and traveled through China, um, continuing his artistic journey. 
And what we can see in the exhibit is a range of his works from the, his earliest days as a painter, um, moving into his more, more known later days. And he's really known for kind of combining all these different aspects of um, what was going on in the artistic world of China at the time. So he was doing brush painting, which is one of the traditional arts of China. But the way in which he was able to kind of encapsulate the modern feelings going on at the time, um, you can kind of see, well, perhaps not see, but if you read the panels and, and maybe look closely at the paintings, you can see uh, the way his brush strokes are kind of uh, formulated but erratic, kind of taking his own twist on the traditional art of brush painting. And uh, he's most well known for his scenes of daily life, which made him really relatable to the populace, which is kind of why he was able to capture so much attention and, and so much love. And he paints all kinds of things from mice, which are featured in the exhibit, to shrimp, which are very popular. He's very well known for his depictions of shrimp. And that was something he toiled at a long time to get his little shrimp just right. Per exactly. And uh, one other interesting thing is he trained many, many artists. His, you know, many artists followed his hand. And uh, he's also kind of known as the most revered as well as uh, perhaps the most copied, the most forged artist. Uh, and huh. Yeah, <laughs> a sad irony for an impoverished uh, artist. Right. But he did uh, go on, I think, to win the International World Peace Award right before his death, uh, which was really interesting and speaks to the influence that he had on the world, not just, um, you know, the artistic sphere in China. And I can tell you, I just returned from a trip to his hometown oh, in uh, Hunan nice province. Well, we uh, we were traveling an exhibit of our Native American collection, part of that collection to China. So we worked with the Hunan Provincial Museum to do a trade, which is always really nice uh, when we can work Very. with our colleagues. So we got to receive this wonderful collection of Chiu Baishu's paintings, which have never been exhibited outside of China. And it's also very special because it's his hometown. So there's kind of a, a nice emotional connection there. And having been there, I can also say that the people of that area are very proud of Chiu Baishu. Well, we'd have another whole show to talk about yes. how the Native American art was uh, received there. So but, uh, wonderful that you could go there and do that yes it was a great Very. experience so when did he die again um i i can't recall off the top of my head it just was, give me a deck i within think a decade it was perhaps 1920s to 1930s okay so before uh, nanjing everybody thinks collapsing yes. he's gone <laughs> okay oh well that's that's a marvel now as i said it's an embarrassment of riches there are also adams photographs from adams Curtis uh, and Weston, photographers of the American West. That goes on until right around Thanksgiving, folks, November 29th. It's a rare treat to see the masters, two of whom were close friends, side by right. side. Tell us what put that together, how that idea came together. So we had the uh, fortunate opportunity, uh, I believe it was in the mid-2000s, to work with the Capital Group. Um, who has the owners? Of, yes, uh, the, the portfolio that has so much money they can buy up all these beautiful photographs. They have a foundation, um, and they like to widely exhibit and educate the the country, uh, maybe one day the world, about American photography. So we had uh, the opportunity to do an Ansel Adams exhibit in the two thousands, and uh, they would were willing to work with us again. And we thought, what a wonderful opportunity! Uh, and it's also special to us since the Capital Group is kind of you know a, a hometown company to Orange County. They're based in Irvine, so it's a nice experience. But, uh, you know, Adams, Curtis and Wesson are such well-known photographers, really kind of household names. 
And when we were looking at the collection, we thought uh, what would be really interesting was to show how they each, in their own way, portrayed the Western landscape, particularly because they all come from slightly different times, uh, Curtis being, you know, right. a, a bit earlier than Ansel and uh, Edward Wesson, who were friends. But they all definitely have their own take and their own artistic take on the West. And it's really interesting to consider all those perspectives together. And uh, especially when you kind of consider America's fascination with the West uh, w- through the idea of manifest destiny, even until today. So uh, we start off exactly. with... Exactly. Yes. You're, you're right about that. Yes. So that's what we were trying to achieve. And another really exciting uh, component of this exhibit is that it's in our historic wing. And we were able to renovate a part of the space where the exhibit is housed, is on view. So that's the first time those galleries were renovated in quite some time. And so, folks, I want you to know, uh, please go back toward that corridor because most of us are used to seeing your permanent exhibit of early uh, American California. art, early yes. California, early uh, Mesoamerica. So yes. uh, I want people to know that those galleries are where this new exhibit is. Exactly. And um, it's a beautiful new space that we were able to, well, not new, but renovated space, we we're able to showcase these wonderful pieces in. So it's exciting for us in that respect as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, again, like I said, very varied because Curtis, his focus was on the cultures and peoples of the West, the indigenous peoples, the Native Americans. And he's very interesting because he is known to have posed or suggestively uh, inc- photographed people and their customs in a way that romanticized Native Americans and the West. Well, yes, I've read the t- definitive Tim Egan book about that. Yes. And I'm, I'm, I know people want to say that so facilely, but I think there, this man was much more driven about capturing the vanishing population, and you were talking about Manifest Destiny, that that was sl- smacking down all these Native Americans, and he's, he's trying to walk a fine line between uh, getting that photograph, not getting that photograph, being a part of, uh, being able to capture pageant, which was considered very, very off the, the white man's yes, record. So yes. I'm thinking he, he had so many, so many things he wanted to do with so little time, with so little money, that uh, I, I think what whatever he did, it was, uh, and I think with what what from what I read from Tim Egan is those portraits are when you see all of them, and there are so many now. Mm-hmm. We just see a few at the exhibit. Yes, but those portraits bring a kind of a layered disposition about what the sitting figure is processing in that stage of their life, and so there there's different kind of of grandeur or resentment, all those th- layers are coming through some of those photographs more than in other photographs. Right. So I think it's it's a much, much more nuanced kind of interaction, interplay between photographer and, and subject. post and subject. Sure. So um, I, I always want to interject that, and I hope that book is going to be on sale in the museum. I believe we have several books uh, for sale on Curtis. All of these photographers are so prolific and so well-loved that there's just so much material available on them, which is great. You know, you can really uh, continue your experience after the exhibit by learning a little bit yourself or, you know, just really spending some time contemplating what you've seen. So we've got that going on till November 29. We're going to wrap up really fast here. The, the retrospective of Nancy Ravenhall Johnson, it's a lovely multimedia installation yes. that's been extended through uh, November 27. So yes. uh, it's just one of those little jewels there. And take time, folks. 
It's a sign of a whimsical journey of one of our most loved uh, former colleagues who passed away uh, in December of 2014. And it was really nice. Uh, her husband, Paul Johnson, still works with us. He's our vice president of exhibition design and installation. So he was able to put together this nice tribute for her. Uh, and many people, she was at the museum for several years. So many people in our um, audience base and our members really loved her and and her work she designed all the graphics in the exhibit those beautiful timelines that many visitors have seen were all the work of her hand and did she, did she also do the day of the dead exhibit uh i believe she behind so that it was yes she i mean she worked at the bowers for several years and um started i think in our gallery store and worked as a graphic designer worked her way up to our director of creative design so the exhibit not only features her personal artworks from you know out of the the workplace but off also some of her best graphic uh, additions to our exhibits wonderful so folks this is at the bowers museum at 2002 North Main Street in Santa Ana. Tickets and information are at 714-567-3600 or the web www.bowers.org. I want to thank Victoria Gerard for coming in this oh, morning. My She's pleasure. Associate Curator of Special Exhibitions and Research at the Bowers, who's joined me in studio today. Uh, I'll uh, look forward. I've, I've got to make a few more passes there because I, I want to see different ages interacting with all these. And all, all my Chinese friends know about the, 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 the Chibai 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 yeah. exhibit, but I, I want everybody to take a look at that because it's, it, it's, it's a very different sweep of ink. Absolutely. So I want to thank everybody for listening. As thank we you. close, I'd like to mention that next week will be a pleasure to bring Jack Miles, editor of the recently released Anthology of Religion, here on Ask a Leader. We'll examine how homogenous societies and heterogeneous societies manage and accommodate understanding multiple religions. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Und die trägt er im Gesicht. Und McKeister hat ein Messer. Doch das Messer sieht man nicht.